Welcome back to Lawali Life, the podcast. I'm Alice Law, your host and founder of Lawali Life, which is my coaching practice I've set up to help stressed professionals and entrepreneurs to manage, get rid of, and decrease stress whilst improving their personal and professional performance. This podcast is based purely around stress and loss and is a mixture of conversations with amazing leaders in their fields from top CEOs, neuroscientists, authors, other coaches and practitioners, spiritual thought leaders, entrepreneurs and more, guiding you through their own personal stresses and losses they've had to overcome, how they did it and tips on how we can get you through yours. Today's guest is the wonderful Yet Shankman, who is the founder of Couture Label Eponine London, as well as being the co-founder of the amazing mental health charity WFCS, which is also based in London. It works largely with bereaved people and also other mental health issues, allowing them access to cognitive behavioural therapy and more. I'm so incredibly impressed with what she's managed to achieve with this charity for such a needed cause, making it accessible to the masses. I've personally used it myself and couldn't recommend it more, so if you'd like further information information on the charity then please look in the show notes i thoroughly enjoyed this conversation talking about loss and how it affects different people and the importance of the deeper connection to ourselves so much for joining yet shankman it's very exciting to have you um yet is a well a lot of things <laughs> she's founder and director of eponine which is a couture brand in london and also co-founder of mental health charity wfcs which is based in south kensington it's amazing to talk to you today thank you for having me it's very exciting thank you so You obviously have dealt with stress and loss, being an entrepreneur and working with that charity. What does loss mean to you, first of all? Well, loss is such a broad um, term. And uh, so, for example, the people that I see for counselling... ..on every occasion will have a person... Uh, that they have lost, which they are really struggling with to come to terms with. But then to me, loss is also friendships, loss of jobs, loss of relationships, loss of self. Um, I mean, the list really goes on. And I think a lot of time today, people are just lost in this world of telephones, computers and make-believe and suddenly they feel incredibly irrelevant yeah and lonely within that whole artificial world and i think that that causes massive loss of self yeah it's so interesting isn't it it's so true we just get completely delved into the technology and everyone kind of loses track of well being present really isn't it and being yeah it's about not being present anymore and it's about it's, it's, I was explaining to someone the other day, it's really about um, being in your head rather than in your soul. And to me, that's a very big difference. And it's so important that we keep reconnecting to our soul because that's where our true self resides and definitely not in our head. But that's easier said than done. I'm just as addicted to my phone (laughs) as anyone else. But I'm aware of it and I think I'm becoming much more aware of it. And I I try to not pick it up as much as I shoot. But then I also don't like the word shoot very much. But (laughs) then I ought to. Uh, But it is, 
it, it's it, it's difficult because when you're running your own business like I do, I, I'm in charge of my own social media, so that means you're always spending, you know, you have to post loads of pictures and you kind of keep an eye on how something is doing. And anyway, it's a task for me to, to reduce that. And uh, But then we all have our own habits, I guess, that we like to change or address. And anyway, this is what I'm buying. <laughs> I love that you say that though, um, connecting to your soul, because that's something I massively believe in, that you can't have a calm mind if you don't have a calm soul, because if you're not truly connected to yourself and your soul, then you're not going to be happy, you're going to be stressed and anxious without really realising why. So I love that you say that's really... Well, I think that uh, um, I went to a very interesting lecture by um, uh, someone called Eckhart Tolle the other day. I love who, him. Um, so I went to see him at the Albert Hall. The Albert Hall was absolutely packed with thousands of people listening to this tiny man on the stage. And and actually, when you really think about his message, I mean, he talked for hours and it was obviously very interesting. But he says we have become slaves of our own narrative. We are so much in our head, as I was just referring to as well, and I I really happen to agree with him, that we are believing our own stories and we become so... And and they run us, you know, they give us anxiety. They, they, They just cause so much disturbance. And he says if you connect to your inner self... And with me being a Catholic, for me, my inner self is God. Um, and he calls it, you know, he refers to Buddha and loads of other big um, universe uh, teachers. And, yeah. um, and so for all of us, for each of us, that's going to be different. But if you reconnect to that, um, the, the, the peace that you find is really incredible. And I think you can find that very quickly too and it gives you a real understanding of what you're doing and and for me the ego which is obviously very attached to the narrative of your of your head is is it's important to try and suppress it as much as you can and and not attach too much importance to what you do or where you are in life or um, yeah, I think t- to find humility is a really important thing. Yeah, I love. I, I can't believe you went to see him. I didn't know he was here. I think he's amazing. I can't believe. I think he was the first person I read talking about the difference between the ego and your higher self, your true yeah. self. And I think a lot of people don't even realise if you haven't gone into that that your ego is even there. Absolutely, you think or you're that all that's one voice. divided. Exactly. Yeah, just yeah. no, so I interesting. Agree. So for you, what is the biggest loss or stress that you've personally had to overcome? Well, there were really, uh, there were two, if I can mention two. Um, The first one was the death of my father, who I was uh, very close to. Um, He'd had Parkinson's and had been ill for quite a long time. However, when the end came, it was, how you can prepare as much as you like. And I often say this to my uh, clients that I see for counselling too, but when the moment comes, it's still a massive shock. And um, I had to, I was uh, due to fly back to Holland um, to see him. And uh, whilst whilst I was there, something happened and he had a stroke. And 
Um, so I stayed there until the end. And uh, I came back, I arrived back, and there was a taxi waiting to take me to hospital. For I had to have a hysterectomy, so I had to have a very big operation. And at that time, I thought, I'm gonna... Uh, I, I'm going to have to focus on getting better because I had four children and I just thought this whole bereavement thing I, I can't do that right now and then so I got on with my life got better and then almost to the day I had a one day I, I physically and mentally had a kind of breakdown and uh, uh, my husband realized what was going on and sent me to a sort of, I think it was like a sort of health spa, where I cried for four days. I had lots of treatments. I had a big haircut, came back, looked very different. <laughs> and it was a bereavement. It was a grief that needed to come out. So How long after that was... That was exactly a year after my yeah. father's death. And then the, the second one was when my niece um, committed suicide. She was, um, we were very close, um, both as a family and, and uh, she and I were very close. And we were so shocked by that, that we, but at that time I realized that talking about death um, was something that I could do. And I was determined that something good had to come out of so something so bad. So I decided to train as a bereavement counsellor. So so that's I did that um, quite a few years ago. And I trained at Cruz, which is a big national bereavement uh, charity, and worked with them for many years. And then um, decided with a girlfriend of mine to set up our own charity. Um, where we don't just do bereavement, but we also do um, give psychotherapy, have um, people who provide that for us, um, all um, volunteers, which is great. We do art therapy and um, cognitive behaviour therapy, CBT. So we were just looking for people who said, I don't mind to spend, no, to give you two or three hours a a week uh, for free. So we've uh, we've grown quite fast, and we see a lot of people every week, and um, have also set something up in a school, a drop-in center. So that's a big part of my life. That's very important. I think today, mental health is is a, is a uh, something that people feel they can talk about more. It's not as much a sort of shame as it was for a lot of people beforehand. And and I think there's a, a mental health crisis in this country. And I think the national health is doing all they can, but really are struggling to filter people through quickly yeah. um, and get them to be seen. I mean, it's still, like you say, the crisis, I completely agree with that. The, statistically, the biggest killer for men under 45 in this yeah. country is still themselves, which when yeah. you think about, you know, Cancer, diabetes, all these huge diseases, know, that that is still shocking. the biggest killer. It's a hu- it's ridiculously shocking. Yeah. It's such a crisis. Yeah, no, I agree. I bet it's amazing to do, you know, put together a charity like that. I mean, as you know, I've actually used it myself. I think it's incredible. You have amazing people working for you, with you. Um, what would you say then, 
in terms of because you say like talking about things like death and mm. you're able to talk about death I find you know a lot of people can't mm. why do you think the reason for that is that some people are so awkward with the fate we all share <laughs> I know I think that a lot of people cannot access the reality that they're gonna die yeah so it's something that they push forward and oh you know when the moment comes I'll think about that and uh, and in other cases uh, it will open up a lot of trauma that they uh, have either very firmly closed the lid on or they have they might have had a recent bereavement and find it difficult to talk about to talk about death um, it, it is uh, it is a topic that is not an easy one to talk about. So I understand it though, because of the few things that I've just mentioned. There's, everyone has got a different reason why. But we have we we have plenty of uh, examples of people who literally cannot. Um, access that pain and really try to move on with their lives and in a little bit it's not obviously similar exactly the same as mine where I physically had real signs of that something wasn't right um, and then suddenly meant, you know, the mental thing sort of happened at all so everything sort of came at the same time but people develop um, all sorts of problems due to undigested or un sort of you know unresolved I should say uh, bereavements and uh, uh, the majority of us will be able to cope with a loss without having to go to a counselor. But I think so, so. Very often when people come, there are additional issues mm. that are suddenly coming to the surface and or trigger points that are related to. And, and so the way I sometimes explain to my clients is it's what we can do here is to, to line up all the dots on the piece of paper. Do you remember when you were little? You could sort of make these drawings sort of lining. And so sometimes a lot of stuff has become so muddled up. Um, people just can't see the light through the trees. Or the lights through the woods, whatever the expression yeah. is. <laughs> but I think that that is... Our job is to mainly listen and, and sort of listen out for the big words and, and sort of sometimes we say things and we actually not even realise what a big thing we've just said. So as a counsellor, you listen out for that and you reflect it back. And, yeah, you're just guiding someone, but you can't give them a quick fix or tell them what to do I mean that's not not our job <laughs> no I mean that's it's so it's so interesting isn't it that um it's a reflection like you say of being able to kind of see where your emotions are lying with the loss in whatever mm. way that is but what would you say was the greatest thing for you that helped you then overcome your bereavements and your losses and well I think it was uh, um, facing facing the loss you know, actually looking it into the eye and feeling it rather than trying to keep it down. Yeah. I think that that, is, that was the, the, the thing that I needed to do and had completely failed to do. 
it, it didn't mean that I wasn't thinking about my father, but I couldn't access the pain because I'd sort of pushed it down as far as I could. And, uh, um, and you know, you go through these these losses, and in my case, these two big losses, and I love the way that they teach you. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the it's all part of your personal growth. And I think that that is, I, I'm grateful for that because it also means you understand other people better. Yeah, you definitely develop empathy, that's for sure. Yeah. In a yeah. different way. Yeah. What do you say when then is the main thing that people need to avoid saying to someone when they're going through loss? Because, you know, some people, you know, I've, <laughs> I've had funny moments where I think I won't mention who it was. <laughs> Family friend said to me, you know, at the, uh, my father's funeral, I'm not very good with funerals. You? And I was like, well, no. not great, but I kind of have to be at my dad's funeral. And I think some people panic in no, no, sort they of get these situations, so don't they? People get so awkward. And I think it is uh, because they literally don't know what to say. And I mean, there are times when... Uh, at funerals, there is hysterical laughter as well. Mm. You know, that sort of uh, fine... There's a very fine line between absolutely hysterical and tears and then sort of completely losing it with laughter. And at each of these funerals, th- those two main ones, th- that has happened to us too. And uh, um, But it's just all the adrenaline, you know, that sort of <laughs> pumping through your body. The worst thing that people can say is um oh he's in he or she's in a better place (laughs) and uh, oh and how lucky are you because that person had such a full life that's the most annoying one to me i think oh is it (laughs) yeah i just think that that is so patronizing because however old someone is whether you know if you have an intimate relationship with someone I mean, who is that person to say that to you? <laughs> no, it's infuriating. But the thing is, I have a lot of sympathy, though, because I know that these remarks come from just desperation. I mean, I actually... Writing letters uh, is another one. Um, uh, Greg, my husband, writes really good letters. And despite what I, you know, being a bereavement counsellor, I still find writing... Not so easy because you don't want to have too many platitudes in those sort of letters, and you really want it to come from the heart. So I'd much rather see someone and then sort of talk to them. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I think as well though the writing letters, I think it's a, it's getting missed out on our generation in terms of grief, and I think it's something that your generation does so well. Is yeah, to write it's, a letter. it's true actually. Because I've had so many incredible messages and some amazing letters, but. Messages, particularly, you know, four years ago when my sister died, and I can't find those messages. Yeah, when I want so to. true. Yeah, yeah, it's and so it, true. I think people forget. Well, our generation forgets maybe that the reason people write a letter is for like you know a year's time that person might want to go back and read Very it. Very true. And yeah. be comforted. Yeah. So I think yeah, writing letters for as a generational thing needs to kind of be kept yeah. as much as possible no, well, but that's something that you have learned mm. and that's something you can really teach your friends or when those moments come up to say actually you know what well, that letter is going to mean a lot to so and so yeah and uh, uh definitely write it if you can yeah no it's a good point what do you see as the biggest challenge around people coping with loss then if you see all these people you know coming through charities or people you know or 
Uh, I think the a really big challenge is the sense of isolation that people feel because we all have friends and family that we can talk to. But there is a point, and it's interesting because a lot of people say it's around three months that people uh, around you will hint that they feel that it's time for you to move on. <laughs> and, um, but a, a, a bereavement can go on for, for years. Yes, yes, yes. You know, no, and it's up to, and no one has the right to say that, but you hope that no one is ever going to say that, but the reality is that they're thinking it. Yeah. And I think if you have, if there is unresolved or complicated grief, which was the word I was looking for earlier. Um, so complicated means, you know, there are a lot of additional factors within that bereavement that have risen to the surface. Um, there is no way that you're going to be ready after three months to talk about it. So people feel, when I say isolated, they feel they're still socialising and they're seeing their friends, but they cannot talk about their grief. So... With some of us, we can move on. And with some of us, you know, we have to say, actually, I'm really stuck. And that's when people come. It's interesting, isn't it, though? Because like you say, I think the three-month mark is such a... Do you find that? Yeah. And I I did with my sister, and I, I'm sort of, what, three and a half months now with my dad. And weirdly, all at the same time, my sister, my other sister and my mum have all sort of been a bit... Mm, you know, the last sort of few weeks. And I think it's that thing of, well, the initial bit is like the adrenaline of everything that's gone Absolutely. on, like you say, yeah. and then the shock. Yeah. And then you sort of start to process it and then everyone goes back to their normal lives, yeah. apart from, you know, the odd wonderful few. Mm. And you do start to feel isolated, as you say, yeah. even though no one means to isolate you. No, no, they've been mortified. But they literally, they feel, you know, they've, they've kind of run out of things to say to you. Exactly. <laughs> uh, related to you know, related no, to no, the bereavement, no. and it's like, oh dear, here we go again. And and the thing is, I you can't, I you, one can't hold it against people, because we you understand it, and the thing, because you and I might be able to talk about this kind of stuff, certainly doesn't mean that that sentiment is shared with everyone. No, exactly. Um, so I kind of saw it as a gift. But that I was able to, because I think in the aftermath of my niece's death, um, I learned a lot from my sister and brother-in-law who, who went, you, you know, they, they also went through that stage where they felt that, I mean, they have an incredible support network. Um, but I remember my sister-in-law saying one day, you know, I was walking through the high street and I saw someone in the distance and I saw them crossing the road. Uh, because people are, ah, you know, oh, I love to see her, but oh my gosh, and I have to have this really awkward conversation about, you know, your daughter and, and but but she always said I understand it, and but here they could cry and they could talk and they felt that it didn't matter whether they repeated the story. So that's when I saw, hmm, maybe there's something. <laughs> To explore. That's actually that's a, a friend of mine who lost her sister. Her sister had that experience where she saw someone crossing to the other side of the road to avoid her, and yeah. she was just like, "Really? Like, I know. Haven't got leprosy." Do you know what I mean? It's such a kind of. Um... But then the thing is, there are also people who 
find it so hard to let go of that bereavement um, because as long as they are very close to that loss and that bereavement um, in that, as, as long as they you know as long as oh, blah, let that go <laughs> <laughs> so we'll start again um, because for a lot of people holding on to the bereavement equals holding on to the deceased and I always explain it as a damp duvet that is wrapped around your shoulders after a while it starts to warm up to your body temperature and you know what it's like if you then have to start peeling it off and you're sitting outside it's actually quite cold and it's much better to hold on to the damp duvet and that is then the challenge to say actually you know you might be cold for a little bit but you know you're going to be fine without and you are not going to forget about the person that you have lost it is just that you're working through the pain and and that is the that is the challenge for some people they they are lost in their loss yeah. <laughs> and and that that's really tough for the for them to to find a way of letting go but yeah it is it's 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 terrible um but a lot of people say oh you know i'm so grateful that you are uh, uh, you know that I, that i can come here and that you're prepared to listen to me but for me it's a massive privilege to do this kind of work and to walk that journey with someone um so it is very much um we, we get a lot of stuff out of it you know a lot of good stuff out of that kind of work too and uh so yeah, I think what I just said is it really is. A, I look at it as a real privilege. That's so nice because it is such a, as you say, like grief comes in waves. And I think when you have someone that's able to walk it with you, because you just don't know when it's going to suddenly sort of swipe you sideways slightly yeah. when you think you're fine or you've yeah. sort of got through what you think is the worst, and then yeah. suddenly you have a a bad week or a bad day. And if yeah, you or a bad moment. Bad, you yeah, can bad be moment, in the supermarket exactly. and something. <laughs> Can trigger no, but it's all these triggers. Yeah. And suddenly you you can start crying, or it's looking at someone who might remind you of that person, or someone might have said something to you that wasn't very friendly, and suddenly, you know, when we're a little bit upset, we then tend to go down, you know, to that sort of point. Um which at that point we're still struggling with. And yeah, no, it's Yes, yeah, it's, it's interesting you say that because that's one of the things that I was reading. A psychotherapist, famous grief psychotherapist, I can't remember her name. She was uh, Elizabeth Kubler Ross. Yes. Yeah. So she was saying, I was reading something of hers the other day or listening, that one of the, when you say you go down in a spiral with your mind, one of the quickest things that people lose during a time of grief or loss is their self esteem and self confidence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I guess you just don't even think of that before, you ha- before it happens that it's going to be an issue for people do you Mm. so what would you say then if someone is losing their confidence or self-worth or whether they're going through a time of loss of grief or you know could be lost from like you say relationships jobs what would you say is a good start to building back up your self-confidence or self-worth well if you really feel that that is affecting you then I would always suggest that someone reaches out for help because that. And, and sometimes all you need is a little 
a little a few tools to say you and and someone to sit there with you and say you are so worthy you are a wonderful person and the feelings that you are experiencing are perfectly normal and uh, and then you do a little bit of um, digging around and you, you find out what has triggered uh, what has triggered these feelings of, of um, insecurity and lack of self-worth I mean it, it, it is rare I think that people uh, feel such a lack of self-worth but for example what happens when people lose someone uh, due to suicide you know what, what what happens a lot is that people ask what if or if only I'd been there an hour earlier and there is and and there you get the shoulds and the ought tos and I this is why I don't like the word should because you 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 completely um, push yourself into a guilty corner oh I should have seen it or I should have said something and how is it possible that uh, I didn't notice any changes in behavior or so so the shoots and the what ifs is that's a very unhelpful route to go but we all do it, it, it but, but the thing is if you are working with someone you can very gently point these things out and, and try and say to people well no, I'm, I, again, I can't perform a miracle, but I'm definitely here to guide you through. Yeah. What would you say is the most rewarding part of that whole experience for you then? The most rewarding one is when someone walks into our, into our room for a session and I, so I'm, I'm a very, intu- I, I work very intuitively with my clients um, and sometimes someone walk in and you might have worked with them you might have seen them for 6 sessions you might have seen them for 20 or 30 sessions and there's a different feeling in that room and you think they're ready to fly you know they're ready to, to, to go their own way and I always bring it into the session and then we talk about it and most of the time that is how it is um, but some people find it scary to to then not have, as you said earlier, you know, not have that um, possibility to go and sort of just pop in for another maybe session or you know. Yeah. A little t- but it is uh, so. I find that that's really rewarding um, because you think that was a good body of work. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. What do you think can be done to change the slight awkwardness around sort of death and what, well, particularly death, because, you know, loss people I don't can, think you can do anything. They just can't? No. No, I think that with the, the, the way that people are more, much more open about um, uh, therapy and mental health-related issues, I think that that's really nice because people feel that they can talk about these things more so the sort of British stiff upper lip you know is you know that's being broken down maybe a little bit but I think death is always going to be a very awkward one I mean but even mental health you know you don't sit at a dinner table and say I've got real issues and uh, 
I'm completely uh, lost and blah, blah, blah. You know, it's the sort of stuff you talk to your good friends about. But I think, um, because of all the reasons I mentioned earlier, I think that death is always going to be a tricky one. So my advice would be is to, to talk to your friends after a while who might have experienced something similar, who, who might have had a, um, a, a big loss in their lives, because they will understand you. Yeah, it is that level of <coughs> empathy, isn't it? Yeah, you say? yeah. Yeah. So what does spirituality mean to you? Well, I um, am a Catholic, so I became a Catholic about seven years ago. Before that, I was an Anglican, so it wasn't like that I came to my faith completely um, from nowhere. What it means to me is Jesus' message was all about um, love your neighbour. So that doesn't necessarily mean, you know, your immediate neighbor. Well, it probably should do as well, actually. <laughs> um, but for me, being, it means um, going out there and loving as many people as I can and just taking time for people and just cheer, cheer them up sometimes when it's tough or just being kind and looking after the marginalised in our society. So that whether that's the homeless or those struggling with mental health, um, yeah, that's, that's what it means for me. Yeah, and I love that kindness, like you say, just being kind, because I think we often, especially in London, can run around sort of, you know, in our day, very in our own zone, getting mm. somewhere. And actually, if you stop and smile at someone... It makes all the difference. That might have been the best thing that's happened to them that morning. Or you talk to someone um, in, uh, a, you know, a checkout lady in the supermarket. You, you know, there, I, you sometimes see people sometimes don't even have eye contact with the person who's sort of putting all their shopping through. Now, I am no saint. I absolutely like to point <laughs> that out. Uh, I gossip, and which I shouldn't do, I know. But you know, I am no saint. But all I mean, so spirituality. It um, so my faith just always pulls me back. So if I know that I've done something which uh, was possibly not terribly kind or thoughtful, um, I feel when I sort of then reconnect with you know my inner soul uh, and whatever name you want to give to that, with God in my case, I sort of I feel that peace again, and I can I think well I definitely need to do better. Um, so that really matters, yeah. Yeah, I think that's such an important thing. Because I, someone said the other day, it doesn't matter when you die, you know, whether you leave a lot of money behind or whether you've been um, the clever, cleverest person in the world or how many records you've broken or how many dresses I've sold and that, you know, that, that kind of stuff. What actually matters is the di um, you know, the difference that you made to some people's lives, because there might have been a moment when whatever you did might have made a big impact. Yeah, I think it was I feel like Maya Angelou, who was that amazing writer who died, and she was like Oprah's mentor, and she said, "She's amazing." I love her, and yeah. she said. Um, 
people will forget what you said and what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. There you go. That's so that that's I'm sure that's what I'm referring to. Yeah. Or heard that quote from her. And it's so true. And it's the essence of life for me. So that's my yeah, that's what my that's my spirituality. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> So do you have a book that has inspired or changed your... Um, well, I have... Uh, so obviously I should, I, I should say the Bible, but um, I don't read it as much as she <laughs> do. Uh, but then I hear it every Sunday in church. Um, there is a, uh, a book that I read, um, which is next to my bed, called The Imitation of Christ, which is, uh, was written by a monk. In something like I think in the 1500s, and um, so it's a little leather-bound book. And uh, the way I read it is uh, from time to time I just open it uh, randomly, and I find very often that the bit that is in there at that moment is exactly what I should be reading that day. So that's an important book. And then in terms of um, a novel. I'm just going to add a novel because uh, there's a book by Rose Tremaine called Restoration, which is about written around the time of uh, King Charles the... I don't know what number. <laughs> One of the but, King Charles. Uh, yeah, but that is... It was, you know when you occasionally read a novel, you literally cannot put down. Well, yeah. that was the one. It was absorbed. Yeah. I love yeah. that. If you live by one intentional one mantra or one... Yeah, sentence to live into every day. What is that kind of intention for you? Love as much as you can. I love that. That's a good intention. Well, thank you so much. You're yeah, welcome. it was great talking that to you. That was really, really lovely. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Lawali Life podcast. If you are enjoying it, then please hit subscribe and download all the episodes so I can continue to bring you more amazing guests from around the world and help you through your own personal stresses and losses. Stay tuned. <laughs>